Please open your Bibles to James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. The passage may be found in your pew Bibles on page 1013. I'll be reading from the, from the English Standard Version, which is the translation that Pastor Jeremy Fuller will be preaching from. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his holy word. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to the Epistle of James. Let us pray. Oh, Father in heaven, I am but your servant in your house. I pray, Father, that you would empower me to preach your word. Preach your word in a way that directs people's hearts and minds to you, Father. Work in our hearts now to feed off of your word and to grow from it, Lord, that we may be a fruitful tree, pleasing to you, Father, and that we would glorify your name in doing this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, C.S. Lewis, in his... uh, Writings calls courage the testing point for every virtue. He uses the example of Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was willing to be a just man. He didn't want to crucify Jesus who didn't deserve it. He was willing to be just until it cost him something. Until they started threatening his position and then he handed him over to be crucified. You see, he was willing to be just as long as it was easy. So if uh, someone is an honest person, uh, or they claim to be an honest person, are they honest when it may cost them their job? If someone is generous, will they be generous when they're down to their last two pennies? The point of Lewis's statement is that virtue is most clearly seen to be real when it becomes dangerous to hold it up, yet the person does so anyway. Now I would like to add to this, I would like to say that, uh, suggest that there's another testing point for all virtues. And that testing point for all virtues would be endurance or patience. James, at the beginning of his epistle, the very first thing he calls us to is joy in trials, because of what such trials produce in our life. They produce endurance. Endurance is waiting out something, it is holding through to a course till the end. And uh, at the, as we wrap up our, um, our study in the book of James, James, in his final exhortations, calls us to be patience. Patience is similar to endurance, except it's more of a matter of the heart. Someone can endure stoically. Someone can endure while holding their wrath in check. But patience 
is enduring with a heart of, of patience and peace and joy, trusting that God is doing something through this. That is what he calls us to at the beginning. The person who counts their trials as such joy sees that there is something in the end that is worth waiting for. So, patience, endurance, another testing point for virtue, shows that it is something deeply ingrained in us rather than being a flash in the pan. As an example, someone may uh, be charitous to a person that annoys them and maybe even think themselves a charitous fellow, but how charitable would they be if they had to live with that person? That would be a testing place of their genuine charity. Someone may have saintly grace to endure a moment's pain, but if they have to endure that pain for life, would they, still, would they maintain that demeanor? Now, James, in his epistle, has taught us a lot about the implications of faith in our life so far. As I mentioned, faith looks at trials with, uh, with joy, recognizing what God is doing in them. A person with faith must not be controlled by their desires, but by the word of God, which they submit, submit to in meekness. True faith in Christ is not a lip service, but it shows itself in the work one is doing. And true faith recognizes the supremacy of God's will over their own and submits to him gladly. And today we see that when we learn that faith does not hope in anything else, but their returning Lord, and waits for him with patience and endurance. Perhaps you'll remember that the last time I preached in James, it was the first six verses of chapter 5. There, James gave a prophetic proclamation against those who are prone to the love of money, towards the idolatrous wealth, even to the point of rejecting God and oppressing his people for the sake of their wealth. James cried out against them, saying that your wealth will be your doom. You will stand before the judge with pitted, rotted possessions all around you. Therefore, uh, the wrath of God was upon them if they do not repent. Also, however, though, this text is also a very stark warning for us. If this is the end of those who hope in their wealth... If this is the end of those who trust in riches, how should the people of God respond to such things? Well, we should run from them like Joseph ran from Potiphar's wife. And since this is the doom of those who make things their greatest, such things their greatest hope, again, we are called not to love them, but to wait patiently on the Lord's coming. You see, those who hope in the Lord will not be put to shame, unlike those who hope in their riches who will be put to shame. Their rot, the rot of their wealth will burn their flesh. However, we can also look at this call in another way. For those who Christians in this community who are experiencing the oppression and the trials from the hands of others that James is talking about in these first six verses, they have a call here to wait on the Lord to deliver them. If you are express, experiencing the oppression of the wicked, know for certain that the Lord is returning, and one day we will be delivered from all such trials. Now, this is not a call to subject yourself to an abusive spouse or a toxic boss, but it does mean that we must, we must respond to such things as Christians, as Christ has called us to do in faith, looking past these events to eternity, 
rather than in anger or fear or despair or desire for vengeance. And trust in God, again, that such things will, he will use such painful trials in our lives in order to bring about in us those virtues that will last forever. Therefore, we can wait patiently on the Lord in such trials and not desire to put our trust into them, but continue to put our trust in our God. And this is what Jesus did. Listen to these words from the book of Hebrew. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's Hebrews 12.2. You see, Jesus scorned the shame of the cross. This means that he counted it as nothing compared to what lied beyond it. And this is part of being patient. It, it, It is much easier to be patient when you know that there's something on the other end worth waiting for. As an example, as a kid, if I knew we were having homemade lasagna for dinner, I could wait patiently. I didn't need snacks. I didn't need junk food. I could eagerly wait for the time that my mom said dinner was ready. And we have a good example in our text. The farmer. Farmers wait over long periods of time for their uh, grains, to, their produce to grow. It grows incrementally over, over the period of months as they wait for all the rain to come. They don't, they don't um, angry that it isn't popping up right away, but they know it'll take a while, and they know that the hope of their finances and of their family's livelihood uh, um, waits on these crops to grow, so he waits patiently for them. He doesn't just give up and then go to the store and grab canned peas. So that is what is the farmer is looking at on the other side of the patient waiting of crops is the payoff of harvest. So the question is before you, what is precious to you? What is it that you will wait patiently for? As Jesus has put it, what is your treasure? And if you're, wherever your treasure is, your heart will be there also. So ask yourself today, what is your treasure and your heart? What is it you are willing to wait patiently for? What is it that you won't wait patiently on? Will you wait patiently on the Lord? Or has something else grabbed your attention as he tarries? And I say, I say that, and that brings to mind the example of Israel in the wilderness. They had just been saved by God from Egypt. And they are at the base of Mount Sinai. And Moses tarries on the mountain receiving the law from God. And what does Israel do? Do they say, well, let's wait patiently on the Lord? Nope. Let's build an idol. So how are you waiting on patiently on the Lord as he seems to tarry? Because he's not. His timing is perfect. Are you building up idols for yourself? Are they popping out of your heart like a golden calf out of an oven? Or do you long for the day of the Lord? Wait patiently, hunger and thirst for his coming, like a small child once hungered and thirst for homemade lasagna. So following this call to exhortation, James gives us two additional, this call to patience, James gives us two additional calls to exhortation, which are part of patient endurance in Christ. And the first is a call to strengthen your heart. 
And this shows us that patience isn't something that is a passive quality which one just happens to have, like eye collar or hair collar or foot size. It is something that you and I have to intentionally work towards. We must strive to be patient in the same way that we must strive to be kind and loving and generous. Yet we do not strive unaided. God has promised that his, in his word that he will work in us that which is, he pleases. He will work in us those things which he wants. As um, Paul says in Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good will. So the Christian must work to, to strive to be patient, knowing that it is God who blesses their efforts. So if you pay, pray for patience... It is more likely that you will find yourself in opportunities that require you to exercise impatience, to exercise patience, to employ patience. It's less likely that you'll one day wake up and say, oh, I'm patient now. So what does it mean to strengthen the heart? Well, to strengthen something means to give it power, to give it fortitude, to give it the ability to do something. And we are called to strengthen our hearts towards patient endurance and the knowledge of the return of Christ, just as a farmer strengthens his heart based on the knowledge that he will one day reap in a harvest of crops. So we are called to set our affection and resolve our hearts to see life through to the end. Strengthening also means to bolster ourselves against enemies and infiltrations. Stand fast against the work of the devil. Strengthen the wall. It's kind of like, think about an army that is about to be sieged. What do they do? They strengthen their doors. They strengthen their defenses. They, they block up the doors against, uh, and put barriers up against all intrusion. That is what we are called to do, to set, ourselves, to set our eyes on the goal of the upward calling in Christ and to protect our heart from all things that could encroach into us. So how does one strengthen their heart? Well, how do you strengthen your body? Exercise, uh, labor, you go to the gym, you pump iron. How do we strengthen our hearts as Christians? We strengthen it by bolstering it with the word of God, with prayer. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We have enemies in our lives, Christians. We have the desires of our hearts that James has talked about here. We have the, uh, sorry, I forgot what I was going to say. We, we have the desires of our heart. We have the lies of this world. We have the roaring lion that is a devil trying to swallow someone. So we need to strengthen our hearts against these foes. And we need to strengthen our hearts, setting our eyes on the goal of the hope that we have of Christ's return. And you see, that's what it says here. Strengthen your hearts. Because the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, what does it mean that the coming of the Lord is at hand? Especially recognizing that James wrote this in the first century. Well, I would say a better way of translating this verse would probably be the coming of the Lord has drawn near. What's the difference? Well, James here is using the perfect tense. Uh, The perfect tense is like the past tense, except it has some nuances. It is referring to a past event that has ongoing consequences. So James is looking to something that has happened in his past and saying that has indicated that the drawing of the Lord is near. So what past event would he be referring to? 
I would say that he is most likely referring to the finished work of Christ on the cross, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension, Christ returning to heaven, where he promises he will return coming, for, as he, uh, coming from the same, the same way he left. So we live in an era where the next big redemptive historical event is going to be Jesus' return. We live in the era just before his second coming. So whether he comes back or tomorrow, whether he comes back tomorrow or in a thousand years, the coming of Christ has drawn near. Therefore, Jesus calls us to be ready at any times, at all times, because he could return at any moment. That is why God calls us to set our hearts, to strengthen them as we wait on this life, to bolster your life against those things that could cause you to be afraid. Yes, we are living in a time of, of uncertainty in COVID right now. How are you bolstering your hearts, waiting on trusting in the Lord in this time of COVID? Are you being controlled by fear? Stockpiling goods? Uh, not going about your everyday life? Or are you controlled by Christ? And what about temptations? We're tempted to do many things. Do you see that temptation in light of Christ's return? Saying, no, I have something better in store than this. This thing may promise joy now. This thing may promise life now. But it is nothing compared to what is coming one day when my Lord returns. Are you waiting on the Lord? So this is the first of the uh, instruction that James gives us in this call to endurance to set our hearts, to bolster them on the returning of the Lord. And when our affections and our hearts are on the right place, this will change our behavior, won't it? In particular, this will change our behavior towards one another. And this is what uh, James gets at at the uh, the next part of this passage. He says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So Jesus tells us to not complain, to not grumble against one another. And the way this is worded makes me think of one of Jesus' parables, the parable of the faithful servant. This is what he says. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds away when he comes. And there is another place where Jesus talks about a similar story, and he talks about a servant who reacted, who saw his master tarrying, and he decided that this was a good time to act up. So the servant saw that his master was delayed in coming, so he started to get drunk. He started to eat food. He started to mistreat the other servants. And what happened? When the, Lord, when the master returned to the house, he was punished severely. He was cut into pieces when the master returned unexpected. So how are we treating other people? Knowing that Christ could return at any minute. Knowing that he is standing at the door ready to knock. If we delight uh, for, uh, for, for basically our treatment of others, cannot be separated from our disposition towards God. If we delight in our salvation, it will produce joy and thanksgiving and love for one another. There will be a dearth of quarreling in our midst, and complaining will be gone. 
But if our hearts are set on other things, if our hearts are set on self-serving interests, well, we have seen in this text what will happen. James previously asked this question in, in chapter 4. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You see, quarreling finds its source in self-centered passions and desires that have taken control. I want what I want, and everyone else is either a tool for that or their competition. So that's why people butt heads. That's why people fight among each other, because this person is not doing my will, and they should be. So we bite and quarrel and devour. And grumbling. But grumbling's no difference. Grumbling is basically a non-confrontational form of quarreling. Grumbling is a verbal fruit of bitterness and holding a grudge. Grumbling is where someone has a beef, real or imagined, against another person, and they hold on to it. They don't refuse to do anything productive with it. They'll mutter under their breath. They'll stew over the wrong that is done. And if they do talk about it, they'll talk about it to other people, not to the person that they need to. You see, grumbling is a symptom of what rules our hearts. Usually, as I said, it is some self-seeking end, a lack of humility, a lack of joy and thankfulness. It is certainly not an action that springs from a heart of service to God. It may be an expression that the person has forgotten or maybe never experienced the grace of God in their life. Sometimes we grumble because we have a higher opinion of ourselves than we ought. We forget how much we have sinned against God and sinned against other people. And the truth of the matter, consider what James has previously talked about. He mentioned the rich people who oppress the poor. The truth of the matter is this. There is not much difference between oppressing the poor for selfish gain than slashing out at someone with your tongue. Sure, the results may be be very different, but both come from the same heart of self-serving interest, from the same heart of idolatry. And note what James says at the end of verse 9. The judge is standing at the door. This brings to mind a parent when they hear a ruckus going on in the house. They go up to the kid's door and they're about ready to knock. And they hear something going on on the inside. They're trying to figure out what happens. Jesus is standing at the door. He's ready to knock. He hears what is going on on the other side. He knows what is going on in our midst. Do not think that this will be lost on him. If our lives and our speech is full of grumbling, that says an awful lot about our heart. As we learned in Sunday school this morning, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And grumbling words will stand against a person. Because scripture says that we will have to bear testament, we will have to bear account for every foolish word that we speak. So don't think that Christ will not know when we grumble against one another. Here we are called to live every moment of our lives as if we were in the presence of our God and our Savior. Because we are. 
So what should we do instead of grumbling? Well, I would like to uh, make a few suggestions. First and foremost, when we need to consider whether someone has actually done something wrong against us, whether we have a right to grumble or not, because our grumbling may not have its roots in another person's behavior as much as it has its roots in our own hearts. So maybe we need to do some self-reflecting. We need to consider whether we're responding from uh, insecurities or irritability or suspicion or self-centered agenda or fill in the blank. If that is the case, then we're the ones that need to repent rather than the person we seem to think has done something wrong. Now, sometimes we grumble because someone has really sinned against us. So we tell other people about how, what they did, how much they hurt us. Sometimes we don't go to church. Oh, I can't go there. That's how the church treats people. But maybe we need to approach that person with this. First of all, maybe we need to approach God with this instead of grumbling. If we grumble about something, instead of bringing it to the Lord, what does that show us about our relationship with him? So maybe if we're grumbling, instead you need to approach the person who you feel has wronged you. But you need to do this, not in order to feed some sense of rightness or retaliation, but out of a desire to see this person grow in their walk with Christ, to see a relationship restored, to see God honored. We should approach one another in love and reverence to the Lord, not in peevishness or anger. And secondly, if we cannot approach them to deal with the issue, then I would suggest that we find it in our hearts to have the capacity to forgive them. I mean, truly forgive them, not say that we do, but yet continue to bring up the subject matter. Here's a hint. If you start a sentence with, I forgive them, but it's a good indicator that some grumbling is about to commence. So again, do you see, think that Christ sits in heaven grumbling against you? He who you sin against regularly? He who died on the cross for your sins? Do you think he sits in heaven saying to the angels, well, man, that Jeremy. I don't want to talk about this. I probably shouldn't, but no, he doesn't. Christ sits in heaven interceding for you before the throne of God. Christ sent his spirit to dwell in your heart. Christ does not sit in heaven grumbling against us. What right do we have then to grumble against one another? No, we are all servants in the master's house. He calls us to serve joyfully and patiently, waiting for his return, knowing that we are not better one than another, but knowing that he is the source and the, and the focus of our lives, that we should spend our whole lives focusing on him, not on ourselves. And that's ultimately what grumbling is. Grumbling is when we have the focus of ourselves, on, on ourselves rather than him. And again, the motivation is the same as in the previous verse. Do not grumble that you may not be judged, because behold, the judge is standing at the door. So part of the patient endurance that we are called to here is to be ready for Christ's return at any minute. 
Oh, his return could be thousands of years from now. Or I might leave here and get struck by a meteorite. But whether I'm to die today or to die someday or meet him when he returns, we have this call in our text, be ready to meet him when he comes. So would you be willing, if whatever you do in the private and in public, would you do it if Christ was standing there? If he was looking over your shoulder at your computer screen? If you're sitting in the passenger seat while you're driving down a crowded freeway? Will you be glad at his coming, as every Christian should be? Or will you shrink back from him in shame? So this call to patient endurance, this call to prepare our hearts for his coming, to set our hope and our affections on Christ and his return, affects our behavior. And now James wraps this up by giving us two examples from history. But really, both examples have one point to make to us, one important truth. Patiently waiting on the Lord is a patience that pays off. First, consider the prophets. A prophet's life was not easy. Often they are tasked with proclaiming the word of God to people who would not listen to them. In fact, several prophets were told this. They were told beforehand that no one would listen to their message. Consider the prophet Jeremiah, who is oftentimes called the weeping prophet. He was commanded not to get married. He was imprisoned. He was beaten. He was put in the stocks. He was lowered into a cistern and kept a prisoner there. Once, his entire life's work was destroyed, and he had to rewrite it all. And tradition holds that Jeremiah was stoned to death. Why in the world did he go through this? It is because he set his eyes on the fulfillment of all of God's promises. He considered God far more worthy than any fleeting comfort or escape that these momentary trials offer. He considered the, the, the future joy as nothing, as everything compared to the present trials. They were nothing to him. He was willing to endure them for what came afterwards. And my question is this. Do you think Jeremiah was disappointed? Do you think he one day stood before the Lord and said, well, that was not worthwhile? No. I'm certain that Jeremiah stood before his God and said, Lord, you did all things well. Now I imagine that you have had an experience that has, led to, that has been disappointing. Maybe you were waiting for something that you were looking forward to, like a, a sequel to a book or movie, and it turned out to be a flop. Or uh, you had a great project that you were excited to finish, and it turned out to be a disappointment. I remember once I spent uh, two days uh, making the components to a cake. And when the cake was done, it turned out to be both dry and runny at the same time. Uh, Needless to say, I was very disappointed. Well, this second example, it reminds us more emphatically that none who wait on the Lord will be put to shame. Perhaps you have heard of a man named Job. 
Even in secular circles, the patience of Job is used as a, uh, as a phrase. He had the patience of Job. Job was a man who endured very extreme hardships. He lost everything that he had in a matter of days, and this included his children. Eventually, his own health was taken from him, too. And as this man sat miserable in ashes, covered in sores, he even then had to endure something just as painful, bad advice. His wife says to him at one point, Do you still hold to your integrity? Curse God and die. Basically, what good has this been? What good has your faith in God been? Nothing. You have lost everything. Therefore, just let go. Give up on God. He obviously has given up on you. And what is Job's response? He rebukes his, his wife as a fool. He says, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Do you see that? Shall we not accept good from God, indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? My treasure is God. Whatever he wants to give me, I will take that gladly because I love my God. Why should I not accept everything that comes from his hand? You see, Job recognized what James calls us to. That the trials in life are not an indicator of God's love. That the trials of life will produce in us something that, will, that God desires. Faith, patience, endurance, kindness, love. And James looked beyond, not James, Job looked beyond the adversities that he was facing in order to say these words. Listen to what Job says. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. That is Job thirteen twenty-five to 27. Do you see? This man was afflicted and grieved, yet he refused to let his, to, to let his heart turn away from the Lord. He knew, he knew that even though he had lost everything, including his health, Yet his chief and greatest treasure, his God, is what he still had. And that could never be taken away from him. Even though his skin was being destroyed by sores, he knew he would still see his God one day with his own eyes. So he rested. He endured. He patiently waited for God, for his Redeemer. So what is it that you're waiting on patiently? What is the hope or desire that drives your life, that causes you to get up in the morning when you would rather not, that enables you to take another step when your limbs are heavy? Are there things that you see as more important than your faith, than your family's faith? Are you devoted to your 401k plan, waiting for that big payoff? I tell you, there have been many who have set up for themselves quite a retirement nest egg only to die suddenly before they can enjoy a penny of it. Parents, are you waiting patiently on the Lord as you raise your children? Are you more concerned with their activities, their education, their college prospects, than you are with how well they are waiting on the Lord? Which of those will ultimately carry them through life and into the next? 
You see, many have climbed the corporate ladders. Many have reached the pinnacle of success, only to stand before God, surrounded by rotted and pitted treasures. May our children grow into men and women who, no matter what their lot in life, can declare, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Young people, what is it that you're looking for to complete your life? What is it that you say, when I get this, I will be happy, I will be complete? Because the truth of the matter is, I tell you from experience that these pie-in-the-sky ideas often lead to disappointments. But Christ never will. Please heed me when I say that Christ is the only hope worth waiting on. There is more, some, nothing more certain in heaven and earth than the promises of God. The sun will fail to rise before God fails to keep his word. I challenge you, look at the testimony of Scripture. Has anyone in all of redemptive history ever said, it was bad that I waited on the Lord? Consider the outcome of God with Job. That's what it says in verse 11, that God is compassionate and merciful. And this is his dealing with all of his people. Whatever he brings into your life, whatever hardship, whatever joy or temptation, he will forever be the only constant the only unwavering thing, the only hope that you can count on. He is the only one worth waiting on who will bring an end that is more glorious than anything this life could have to offer. And I want you to listen to this vision which shows us what is in store for those who wait patiently on the Lord. This is taken from the book of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his God, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. Who would trade that for anything this world has to offer? I hope none of you. And I must say that the content of this vision, this promise is not for everyone. If you have have not personally trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then there's a different promise for you. In this text. And this is what it says in verse 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving, and for the abominable and murderers and immoral person and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be 
and the lake of fire, the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You see, if you have not put your faith in Christ, then you are stale stained with the guilt of your sin. And the mark of your idolatry is still on you, and God will not let you into his presence. But this does not have to be your end. You too can have the promise of hope and joy and blessing in God's presence. If you put your faith in him today, if you call upon his name for the forgiveness of your sins, even this day, you can enter into the assurance of these things. So God calls us today. Christians, wait for me. Wait for this blessed hope. Wait on the Lord. Whatever comes your way, knowing that any hardship or worldly pleasure pales in comparison to his mercy and compassion and the promise of glory when he returns. I promise you that this is a patience that pays off. Let us pray. O Lord God, I pray, Lord, for all of us here and all who are listening, that you would cause us to strengthen our hearts, that you would strengthen our hearts, Lord, to wait on these things. May nothing that this world has to offer ever take our eyes away from you, our hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, bolster our hearts, I pray. Set our affections on Christ eternally. May they never waver. May we, by your spirit and strength, persevere and endure, waiting patiently for your coming, that one day we would stand before you in joy, rejoicing that you are here, rejoicing to enter into your presence, knowing that you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Father, do this in us. And for those who may be listening who do not know you, Lord God, I pray that you would show them Christ as he is freely offered in the gospel. I pray that you would show them the stain of their sin and that that bars them from entering into his presence. And I pray, Lord God, that you would cause them to mourn for their sin and to turn to Christ for forgiveness, that they too would enter in this glorious hope that we have in Christ, and they too can declare that while my heart and my flesh may fail me, still my God is my inheritance always. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.